0: What's up, guys? How we doing? <laughs> Where are you guys at on Sunday mornings, man? I love it. That's right. Yes! Well, if y'all didn't hear him chanting my name, my name's Ernie. I'm the the lead pastor here at Mercy Hill Church. Salt Company is the college ministry of our church. It is the premier ministry within our church. It is the leading edge. It is the reason why we moved here to start Mercy Hill Church, to put a salt company on your campus. And so it is exciting for me to be here with you. And we got a lot to talk through. So I'm just going to tell you to open up your Bible right now to Acts 14. Uh, Timmy looked at me and said, hey, you could teach anything between like Acts 11 all the way up to Acts 15. So I chose 14. But on 13, to give you a little bit of context, there's kind of a shift that's happening in the book of Acts. See, up to the point of Acts 13, it has been about Peter and the ministry that God's been doing through him. And now in chapter 13, it takes a shift to Paul and Barnabas. And as you go through the rest of the book of Acts, it's going to be focused in on the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. And you're going to learn a lot about their ministry. And as we look at chapter 14 together, okay, as we look at chapter 14 together tonight, I think chapter 14 points to a lot of things that we would want to be at Mercy Hill Church Salt Company. I think as we look through chapter 14, we would see a lot of things that we would want to be as a church, as a salt company, as a ministry. These are the things that we would want to be made up of. Now, I love the book of Acts because it's a book about church planting. And as a church planter, it reminds me a whole lot of Mercy Hill Church and how it was planted. And we're gonna talk a little bit about that tonight. But something you do, if you do not know this already, That in the same way that Salt Company is a ministry of Mercy Hill Church, Mercy Hill Church is one of many churches in a network of churches called called Salt Network. There's about 30 churches throughout the United States, 31 salt companies. And they have a dream. Let me say this. We have a dream to see 450 churches planted in the next 20 years. Yes, thank you. Let's get excited about that for a second. I like this side. This side's a little bit more quiet. Timmy, you're going to have to make up for all the empty seats around you. All right? (laughs) You got to pick up the slack over there, you know? But 450 churches, only by the hand and work of God would that happen. Only by his power and his ability can this be done. And I think... In order for us, actually, let me say it this way. In order for us to be the kind of people that get to participate in a vision like that, that God, I believe God has for the Salt Network. In order to be those kind of people, there's a lot of characteristics that we see in the text tonight that we must embody as the people of God. That if we're going to see 450 churches planted next to college campuses in the next 20 years, we're going to have to see a lot of people at Mercy Hill Church that have like minds and hearts of the people we read about in Acts 14. So let me pray. We're going to dive right into it. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to what you have to say this morning. That you would transform us, Oh Lord, that you would have, you would have our full attention as we look at this chapter, as we see what you have done through the men of Paul and Barnabas, and God, we would pray and ask that we would be men like them who love you. Not because they are great, but because there is a mighty God that they follow and the Holy Spirit that dwells in them that causes a transformation for them to be people that look like you. And so we wanna be like you, Jesus. Reveal how we can be more like you today. Amen. All right, reading verse 1. There are a lot of towns names that I'm going to mispronounce because no one knows how they're pronounced anyways. All right? It says now at Iconium, they entered together. All right? If you're uh if you have your own Bible, if you're a note taker, circle that word together. We're going to come back to it. He says we entered together into the Jewish synagogues and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Here's the first marker. In fact, I'm thinking an in, in, in Uh, In in this chapter, we're going to see six markers, uh, six things that we must embody. And here's the first thing we need to see is that they went together, that they went together. See, church, ministry, mission, it's not a single player game. It's a family event. See, what church is meant to be is it's meant to be a family that uses their unique giftings on mission together. And the key word is together. In fact, Paul, Paul says it like this in Romans 12. He says he says this about the body. He says, for as, it, for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. In other words, he says, hey, there is one church, there is one body, there is one gathering of people, but it is made up of different kinds of people that bring around different kinds of gifting that add to the people of God. In fact, read with me again in verse five. He says, so we, through many, Are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So the idea that we see when we look at the New Testament is Paul is always creating these lists of gifts that God has bestowed upon the people of the church. Not any any list is encompassing of all of them. They're all just like snapshots. And this is just a snapshot of some of these gifts. But my point is this, is that each and every single one of you have unique gifting that is meant to edify and build up the body around you. You can't edify and build up the body on your own. You can't encourage and spur anyone else if you're just a a solo athlete. It has to be done together, together. As we stick together, amazing things begin to happen. When we gather together as a family using our unique gifting for the mission of God, the gospel goes further faster than it could if we do it individually. See, that's the point that he's speaking to in Romans 12, that Paul's saying, hey, look, these gifts that God has given you is not meant to be spent on you or in isolation as you as a lone wolf, but you're meant to do it together. In fact, we see four of the gifts that he speaks of in Romans 12 in our passage, Like, and, and we see prophecy In verse one, now don't get weirded out. Don't think like you know, like uh, like like the fortune teller, you know, or tarot card reader, or, or or someone who's like going, "Oh, I see. I have a vision of this and that." When you hear prophecy, this is what it means. Very simply, prophecy is the ability to declare the gospel with clarity and conviction and power. Prophecy is the ability to declare the gospel of clarity, conviction, and power. And we see that immediately in verse 1. As Paul and Barnabas show up and they begin to share the gospel, and boom, powerful things begin to happen. Why? Because people, dead people come alive. The word becomes clear. Transformation happens in people's lives. We see in verse 22 that he teaches The believers as he circles back around them to encourage them in the word. We see uh, in verse twenty-two also he exhorts them. As we see these these Christians who have been pushed to the margin, they're under persecution, and he's encouraging them to spur on and go and continue going. We see get the gift of leadership in verse twenty-three in this passage where he raises up elders that would care and train and give them an example to follow. The gifts are necessary. The gifts that God has given you is necessary. See, salt company, this is something you need to understand. If you want to be a part of the mighty movement of God, you can't do it on your own. And you have to use your gifts. You have to use the things that God gave you. See, when God saved you, not only did he transform your heart and mind, not only did he bring you from death to life, but he gave you gifts, spiritual gifts, in order that you would be able to encourage those through acts of mercy acts of generosity, acts of leadership. That there are things that you offer to the team, to the family of God that will help the gospel go further, faster in the city of Cincinnati and on your campus. No matter what the enemy tells you. But the main thing is, is not that God has given you gifts, but that you stay together. You, you have to realize this, that over and over and over again, Paul would speak in his epistles to churches. He would speak about the necessity of keeping unity within the church. Why is that? Because whenever the enemy sees a church that loves God, loves people and is using their unique gifts on mission together, the enemy attacks that church and attacks those people. In fact, here's full confession. I'm gonna get real with y'all right now. There was a time in the life of Mercy Hill Church not that long ago where some of the top leaders of this church were at each other's throats because of brokenness and sin. And thank God for the mercy of God bestowed on those men, me included, that they humbled themselves in front of one another, confessed their sins, worked through stuff, and commit it together. Because the enemy saw something at Mercy Hill Church he didn't like, and he tried to drive a wedge. It will happen, if it happened to those men and all those men are of extremely high character, it could happen to any single one of you. The importance as you guys go charge the campus and try to take over the campus for Jesus is that you stick together. And when you stick together, beautiful things happen. Transformation happens. We've seen it in our church already. I've seen the working of God at Mercy Hill Church. Let me just spell out some ways to you. We're only one verse in, by the way. I've seen people speak boldly about Jesus where now we have baptized 43 new Christians, all of them adults, almost most of them college students. We are reaching the generation that the church says is the hardest generation to reach. We think there is it is the most fruitful harvest that we believe Jesus when we, see, when we, hear, when we talk about Luke 10102, I almost said 10.02. I was gonna get made fun of by, by Timmy about that where he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up laborers. We believe that's the campus. I've seen leaders raise their hand that have never stepped into positions of leadership in the church and said, hey, I'm nervous, but I'll try it and I'll do it. and I'll be humble as I go about it. We've even raised up three local elders this past year in our church. I've seen people spur one another on Encourage one another to take steps of faith that were scary and difficult. I've seen people be generous. Oh, my goodness, y'all. We looked at a church that the average age is probably 28 and said, hey, we need to raise like $3 million. Like, you know, like not $3 million, like $1 million in like the next like three years. And by the way, like 350 three hundred fifty k needs to come like in the next like month and a half. Can y'all do that? And guess what? Mercy Hill Church responded with like almost $400,000. Yes, he did through the people of Mercy Hill Church. How about that? When you stick together, amazing things happen. But you have to be together. Here's the second thing we see. That we would be a family filled with gospel boldness. He says, now in Iconium, Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogues and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews, with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. They learned of it and fled to Lycitra and Deborah and cities of Lyconi and to the surrounding countries. And they were continued to preach the gospel. I told you there's a bunch of names in here. But what did they do? What must we embody? Boldly speaking about Jesus. Look at what these guys did, guys. They just entered a city. They didn't try to take the temperature. They didn't try to learn the culture. They just immediately entered in the city and they started speaking the gospel to these people. I'm going to tell you a story about two summers I had. The first summer that we went to Prague, I was on the first team. I was on the entry, like the, the team, the advanced team, like we went before. Our, our team has come for eight weeks and we met with missionaries. We went to the right local churches. And the, the thing we kept hearing over and over and over again was this. You got to take it slow in Prague. It's 99.9% atheist. Like they have no frame for this. Like you just got to take it slow. If you try to, if you, if you get to it too quickly, it's not going to work out for you. And so, you know what, for the first summer we did that. And we saw zero people come to Christ. In fact, I left with the biggest pit in my stomach I ever left with because there was this couple, Martin and Lucy, that were there. All right, Martin was an atheist. His girlfriend who he lived with was in the Wicca. And they became me, they became like one of my best friends there. But for the entire seven weeks, I never shared the gospel of Martin. Even though I kept feeling this prompting over and over and over and over again. And out of fear, I didn't do it. So I just got in my mind, I'm going back next year. And the first thing I'm doing, I was sitting down with Martin. In fact, the very next year, I was leading the team. The first thing I did as I looked at my team, I said, hey, listen, we're not going to take it slow. We're going to get to the gospel as quickly as we can with anybody that will talk to us. And I sat down with Martin. I shared the gospel of Martin and his girlfriend, Lucy. And I remember by the time the end of the summer came about, We've seen five people come to know Christ. And we're sitting at a celebration of all these missionaries that have done all this work. And they looked at us like we were aliens. You saw five people come to Christ. Some of them have been laboring for 20 years. Matter of fact, that summer was so impactful that that Martin and Lucy called me two years later and they were like, hey, when are you coming back to Prague? I was like, I don't know if I'm making the trip. I got to go somewhere else this summer, you know? And he says, well, we want to get married and we want you to do the wedding, He's an atheist. She's in a Wicca. I look at him I'm like, Martin, do you understand who I am? Like, I'm in ministry. Like, if I do your wedding, like, I'm going to do it from the Bible. I'm going to talk to you about what God expects of you. You're going go to go through this premarital thing, and it's going to be based upon the Bible. Are you cool with that? He's like, yeah, I'm cool with that. They rearranged their wedding about when I was going to be in Prague. I show up to this wedding. It is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. The wedding starts at noon. They're already, like half of them are already drunk off of this whatever wine thing like, that they do, plum vodka thing. It's awful, all right? It tastes like black. It tastes like terrible licorice. Like, it's just like, but they, they do it. I don't know. And so I'm sitting there, and, and Martin's sister has been texting me, has been emailing me, hey, can you send me your manuscript? I'm going to, I'm going to interpret it. And I don't want to send it to her because I'm like, she's probably atheist too. And I don't want her to go over the things that I'm going to say. Well, she walks up to me right before the wedding and she's like, hey, we're Christians and we've been praying for this moment for a long time. I was like, here's my notes. I get up there, I present the gospel to the entire wedding party. We have dinner. Everybody's looking at me as if they've seen an ostrich, you know, talking, you know, like, what is this? There's an American speaking at this. There's a translator like, okay, cool, whatever, you know. We go to, there's a dinner right afterwards, sit down dinner. I try to slip out because they're drinking enough that none of them want to speak English anymore. So I try to slip out because the party's going to go all night. They're going to wake up next morning at the hotel and leave because that's what they do. I'm going to try to go back to my room to go to sleep. And I get out there and somebody comes up and talks to me. and like, hey, we've never heard that before. And I share the gospel with them for about 30 minutes. Then another couple shows up right after them and they start talking to me. And a third couple, and then I realized there's a line of people. The entire wedding party's in a line. I started gathering in groups of threes and four. We shared the gospel individually with every single person at that wedding. Why? Because we were bold and we spoke up. I can't help but think this, Salt Company, that there are people. There are people on your campus right this moment who are crying out to God. In their rooms by themselves, asking him, "Is God asking God if He's real?" And they sit next to you in your biology class, in your accounting class, in your design class. And they are just waiting for you to boldly talk to them. Now here's the thing: boldness does not mean abruptness. If you look at this, he says, hey, they spoke boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace. Salt Company, if you're going to speak boldly of Jesus, it must be about his grace and mercy. Not his judgment like you see those people with signs. That's not boldness, that's stupidity. That's not what God is calling us to do at all. The third thing we see is this. The third mark we have to see is this, is radical humility. Now, for time's sake, I'm not going to read through verses 8, the next 10 verses, but I'm going to tell you what happened. It said Paul and Barnabas, they have to flee because people are trying to kill them, So they flee to another city. And while they're there, they're preaching the gospel. This crippled man is watching Paul and he hears it and he responds to the gospel in faith. And then Paul heals him. He heals him. He was probably like, he looked, it says, in fact, he says he locks eyes with him. It's kind of the same way when Peter locks eyes with somebody earlier in Acts or when Jesus did in the Gospels and heals him. And he heals him right there. And, and here's the issue, okay? Here's the problem that comes up. Is that the miracles that we see in Acts, they're not They're not the point. They're meant to point to the point, which is the message about Jesus, that is meant to authenticate the message that the messenger is given to people. And what happens is these Greeks miss the message and they get focused on the miracle and the messenger. And what happens is these Greeks look at Paul and Barnabas and remember an old fable, an old story about Zeus and Hermes. And they go, they start going, oh, my goodness, the gods have come down. They start calling Paul and Barnabas, Zeus and Hermes. And Paul sees this in Barnabas as they figure it out because they see these people are like chanting in a different language, like the gods are coming down. They're here. It says that Paul and Barnabas, they rip their clothes. And they're not just being dramatic. That was a symbol of the day. That was a symbol of the day to show a sign of complete horror and deep grief. And then in verse 15, look at this. It says this. Paul says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring the good news. You see what Paul says? He says, hey, I'm nothing. I'm just a guy. Salt Company, I'm nothing. I'm just a guy. Timmy is just a guy. Dylan is just a guy. Hayden is just a lady. Like, listen to me, we are nothing special. There's only one person that's special, and that's Jesus. And that's why we sing to him, and that's why we preach of his mercy and grace and his goodness, and not Mercy Hill's or Salt Company's mercy and grace and goodness. We preach of Jesus' mercy and grace and goodness. See, this is a picture of radical humility because at this moment was an opportunity for self exaltation for Paul and Barnabas. They could have been gods for a day. Could you imagine? Would you not be tempted to just like play along for like an hour? They could have elevated themselves and kept the spotlight on what they did. Like, yeah, I did that miracle. Yeah, I gave that great message. And isn't that in our nature that we love when the spotlight is on us? That we love when people are looking up to us as if we're above them? That we love when we are getting the worship and praise, how great of a connection group leader we are, how much we know about the Bible, how popular we are. Don't we love those things? But Christian, that is never meant to be your story. That is never meant to be your posture. That is never meant to be what you put on. In fact, in 1 Peter, 5, verses 5 through 6, Peter says this, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Peter said to clothe yourself in humility because God opposes the pride. But he's with the humble. What does that look like? Does that just look like negative talk about yourself? Like, I'm nothing, I suck, like, I'm not even good at basketball. Like, you know, like, like, you're just like, I'm just mid and everything. Y'all still say that? It's just mid, I'm just mid. Like, well, you know, like you just like tear yourself down. Like, you know, like I'll get the worst self-esteem ever. Is that what it is? I don't think that's what humility is. I think humility is seeing yourself in right perspective to the bigness of God. It's not focusing on your smallness, but focusing on his bigness. Because... (laughs) When we compare our glory to God's, like, because that's what we do when we're proud. Like, we're saying, God, you're cool, but I'm really cool. Like, hey, you're awesome, but what you really need is me. Hey, you know what, God, like, to really get your church going is a guy like me or a gal like me or whatever. Because I'm pretty awesome. When we compare our glory to God's glory, that's like my four-year-old daughter comparing her, like, crayon drawing to, like, famous works of art. And I'm not talking about modern art, okay? That stuff is... If you're into that, great. It looks like my kid's drawings, all right? But I'm talking about the stuff that is just like, you're like, is that a picture? That's 500 years ago? You look at that stuff, and it's cute when it, here's the thing, it's cute when a kid does that, like, yeah, it's just as good. It's pathetic when an adult does, isn't it? You ever watch American Idol, and the guy thinks he's really good at singing? And he gets up there and singing. You got secondhand embarrassment watching him on TV. And the judge is like, you got to stop. He's like, you guys don't know what you're talking about. You're like, you're delusional. That's how it is when I was like, God, we're pretty awesome. I'm pretty cool. I'm just as big as you, God. That's what we look like. It's just silly. See, I'm not telling you, humility is not focusing on your awfulness. It's focusing on his greatness and his goodness and his glory and his bigness and going, oh my goodness, that's amazing. It's like if you go to a basketball game and you're 6'1, you think you're tall and you watch those giants walk around, get floor seats, you're like, where am I? Where do the seven Goliaths come from? You all of a sudden have a new picture of what tall is. We have a new picture of what is good, what is amazing, what is beautiful, what is glorious. And it brings humility into our life. Verse 19, fourth one, we're gonna move fast to our promise. It says, but the Jews came from Antioch to Ikinum, and having persuaded the crowd, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. Supposing that he was dead, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. On the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Here's the first fourth marker. Relentless persistence. Y'all, especially dudes in the room. If you think Christianity is for the weak, look at Paul. This dude just got beaten with rocks to a point that they actually thought he was dead. Like they're going to drag him out of the city because they don't want a stinking carcass there to smell up the city. And he comes to around all of his buddies that came with him. He's like, hey, let's go right back in there and share the gospel again. That's tough. That's grit. That's persistence right there. In fact, it's a marker for Paul's life that over and over and over and over again, when he came across persecution and difficulty, he never shied back, but he continually brought the message over and over and over again. And let me tell you something. There are people like this in your church. There are people who have packed up their kids. They have packed up their lives. They have have moved to Cincinnati. And endured hardship and difficulty because they had the mind like Paul did in 1 Corinthians. Because you ask him like, Paul, why are you doing this? Are you just like, are you crazy? In 1 Corinthians 9, he tells them, I did this because, so that some might come to know Christ. That others may share in the union that I have with Jesus. And there are people like that in our church who have packed up everything they have. They packed up their kids. They walked away. They didn't even know about Cincinnati until we brought them here and said, hey, you should move here and do this with us. And they did. Why? So that more than 43 people would be baptized in the next 20, 30 years. So that the gospel would go forward. I pray that many of you would get to have a story like that one day. That one day when you graduate college, you won't think about where's the biggest check that I can get. Where's the most comfortable place I can be? Where can I be closest to family? But you go, God, may you put me where I can be of highest strategic value for you in the ministry that you have for me. And may I persist in that, even, even when it's not easy even though you're rejected by your classmates, even though they say they don't want to be invited again, they don't want to hear about it anymore. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of people at Mercy Hill Church that have the story of falling Christ because somebody didn't give up on them and they were persistent with asking them, hey, come to church. Persistent with asking, hey, do you know who Jesus is? Persistent with sharing the gospel. And those people told them no over and over and over and over again and finally they said yes and God transformed their life. If we're gonna see transformation, we need to see persistent, persistent relentlessness, relentless persistence. Verse 21, here's the fifth one. When they had preached the gospel to that city, And had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Icon and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, they prayed and fasting. They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Here's the fifth marker that has to be. Fifth thing we have to embody selfless care. The world talks a lot about self care. Guys, you're going to take care of yourself. You know what's weird? You know what's different? It's when Christians selflessly care for one another. You see what Paul did? The guy almost got beaten to death. He's been on a mission road, like walking for months, going from town to town. And what does he do? He circles back around to the churches that he has established to encourage them in the word, to prepare them by telling them the truth that hard times are still gonna come and by giving them leaders to follow. That before he had some self-care for himself, he was selfless in his care for others. And here's the question that people always ask, like, Ernie, if I'm selfless in my care, then who's going to care for me? The person next to you in the church. As you're caring for them, they're caring for you. It kind of works like, guys, you're going to get this, like Spartan felixes. You know what that is? They create these shield walls. You're like, ladies, like, no, I'm going to explain it to you. All right. There's no left-handed people in the Spartan army because in your right hand, you held a spear and in left hand, you held your shield. And the left hand and your shield guarded the man to the left of you. And the man to the right of you guarded you. That's how Christians should look. People that care for one another in such a way that self care is not needed. And you know what? If they miss it, guess what? You have a God that cares for you, that is with you, even if you just got stoned to death. There. Here's the last one. We have to have a finish line focus. I'm going to summarize this one as well. In verses 24 to 28, it says that Paul gets back to Antioch and he says that the work has been fulfilled, that he's done the work that is necessary and he celebrates it with the people of God. Now this was just his first missionary travel. He's gonna have several more, and he's gonna die on his last one. And at the end of his life, he writes a letter to one of his proteges, one of his disciples, Timothy, and he says, hey, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race that God has placed before me. I've kept the faith. I've run through the tape. Christians, if we're going to see 450 churches planted in the next 20 years, we're going to have to have that in mind. See, a lot of people at our church, I keep talking to people at our church, because they feel like, oh, we've appointed elders, and now we have a building. It feels like mission accomplished. And I'm like, no, do you not remember the first vision meeting that we had? See, none of y'all were at this, but we would bring people into Cincinnati and be like, hey, could God see you here? And one of the things we do is we'd bring them to the 50-yard line at UC's football stadium. And we'd point up at and we'd say, there are 40,000 seats in the stadium. And there are now 50,000 students, 50,921 enrollees at UC. Not to mention Xavier and the other campuses in this city. And we said, we dream of a day where kickoff would have to take place in a place like this. Where 40,000 seats would be filled because God has done such a transformational work on the campuses in Cincinnati that we wouldn't be able to fit them in any building. That's mission accomplished in the city of Cincinnati. That's the vision that we put forth. And my hope is that day by day, you would be the kind of people that run through the tape. That you'd be the kind of people that keep your eyes on the prize so that when it's done, when God does it, you could say the words that Paul said, I've run the race. I've run the course that God has given me. I've kept the faith. I've done all the things that Jesus has asked me to my best ability. And some of you may be like, I'm already too messed up for that. Let me tell you something. When I was 20, I started a youth ministry and had one of the biggest moral failures I could ever have and was called out publicly. And through the restoration of godly men in my life, I thought, my ministry life was over, and through the restoration of godly men in my life, and through humility, and through spiritual discipline, being disciplined by the church, God helped put those pieces back together, and I got to be a part of, and I am a part of right now, one of the greatest stories I ever could have read. In I get to be the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. I get to be with you fine people and see God work in front of me every single day throughout the people of God. And I still got a long time to do it. Let's push through the tape. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for men and women that love you. I pray God that we would embody these things, that we would be these kind of people that we'd be people that show humility, that are selfless in our care for one another. That would be people that have a focus on the finish line, like Paul did. That we'd be people that are filled with relentless persistence of the things of God. That we would be people that stick together. Oh Lord Jesus, Only you and through your spirit could that happen. We can't bring it about in our lives. And so Lord, I pray that we would be spirit-filled people that obeyed the voice of God and lived in the fruit and abundance of that. And that bold proclamation of you would not be out of guilt. It would not be out of well, I guess I have to do this. It wouldn't be out of penitence but it would be out of the overwhelming joy that we are called sons and daughters of the King because of what you have done. And we just can't help but wanna share it with the people that we know. God, we love you and we praise you. Amen.